today's scripture reading is from John 6, verses 1 to 15. Please read with me the verses from the After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover... The feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to eat to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who came into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Morning. Volleyballs on heads and cats in windowsills and, and, and I guess water fountain stories. I mean, I, it's, it's been wonderful to hear these testimonies uh, and hear about these encounters with Jesus. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, sometimes the miracles in the Bible are hard to believe. And sometimes we feel like we need to modernize them a little bit. I read about a young boy who burst out of Sunday school filled with excitement, seeing, that his, uh, seeing his father, he ran up and said to him, Dad, I heard the story about Moses and the Jews escaping from Egypt. It's incredible. So the father, looking down at his son with a smile, said, tell me about it. The boy started, it happened like this. Moses and the Jews got out of Egypt and came to the Red Sea. They couldn't get across the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army had them trapped and almost caught them. But at the last second, Moses got on his walkie-talkie, called in the Israeli Air Force to bomb the Egyptian army. At the same time, the Israel, Israel Navy built a pontoon bridge and the Jews walked across the Red Sea to safety. 
shocked. The father said, they didn't really teach you that in Sunday school, did they? And the little boy sheepishly replied, well, not exactly. But if I told you what they really said, you would never believe it. This morning, we come to another unbelievable story in the New Testament, one I have heard modernized as well. You may know the story of the feeding of the 5,000. The only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels, believe it or not. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this particular miracle, the only one, I mean, other than the resurrection, the only other miracle that all four Gospel writers record. And perhaps it's recorded because it may have been the one that the disciples never forgot. Maybe. This account is so significant that not only is it in every gospel, but Jesus refers back to it multiple times as a teaching point. Many of the encounters that Jesus has had up to this point has been with individuals or small groups. This one involves quite a few more. It's the most public of all of his miracles. Some theologians say the number count in this narrative represents only the men, And if that's the case, the number of women and children would be closer to a crowd filling the Golden One Center in downtown Sacramento. If you had to single-handedly free um, uh, feed the people at a Kings game, the question is, what would you do? The other note about this particular narrative, this particular story, this event, Uh, Before we begin, is that the gospel writer John refers to this particular event of the feeding of the 5,000, and it's interesting, he says, not a miracle, but twice, he calls it a sign. In verse 2, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. In fact, John records seven signs, seven such signs in the gospel. And by the end of the book, John gives us the purpose of his writing as he concludes, now Jesus did many other signs. The feeding of the 5,000 certainly classified as a sign. The story goes like this. If you haven't heard it before, a great multitude come to Jesus in the wilderness because the crowds witnessed the signs he was doing. He was healing the sick, making the lame walk, giving sight to the blind. And because of his miraculous work among the ailing, people from all over town in this particular area come to see Jesus in the desert to hear him uh, teach and to witness more wonders that he would perform. They had to see it for themselves. The multitudes travel about two and a half miles outside of town to meet this miracle worker who is gaining popularity. And in that moment, Jesus asked what I think every husband asks his wife around dinner time. What should we eat for dinner? And you usually hear back, I don't know, what do you want to eat? 
Sometimes when my wife is busy or isn't home, I'll ask the kids, what would you like to eat? And the answer is always anything. And then you start going down the list. Thai? Nah. Mexican? Nah. Chinese? Nah. Hamburgers? Nah. You know, and you go through this list. One by one, they reject everything you say. So it's not anything. It's actually nothing. And so one of the disciples remarked, it's getting quite late, Jesus. People are tired. Send them home. Send them home for dinner as the in and out is closing for remodeling, right? It's closed for remodeling. The nearest McDonald's is in Jerusalem. And the Chick-fil-A doesn't deliver in the desert. My funny way of... I mean, it's such a practical and logical solution, I think. The disciples have no food, they have no money, so send them away and let them find their own food. And if we're being honest, most of us in the room would have said the same thing. 200 denarii, I mean, he's doing the calculations in his head of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Jesus, it is not our problem, (laughs) it's theirs. I mean, you know the rest of the story, how they found the young boy with the five loaves and the two fish, and how Jesus blessed that meager lunch that had fed 5,000 men, uh, probably 20,000, with 12 baskets left over, and John calls it a sign. And in this short narrative, the part that sticks out is the response of Jesus to his disciples. You give them something. This passage is rife with principles and truths for us to apply. There is so much packed into this very short story of Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000 applications that are ready for download, truths that are ready to be applied now. Like, for example, as we read through this, we can say, well, yes, Jesus here, he tests the faith of his disciples, particularly Philip, whom he asked in verse 6. He said this, and again, verse 6 says, He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. God never tempts, as we're told in the scriptures, but he will test. And he'll provide trials. And the question is, but why Philip? Why did Jesus address Philip? If you remember earlier in the gospel, specifically in chapter 1 of the book of John, as Jesus goes into Galilee looking for disciples, he finds Philip and invites him to follow him. And in verse 44, chapter 1 tells us that Philip was from Bethsaida. Not far from where we find ourselves this morning. In the feeding of the 5,000. So, Philip, he's the expert. He's the local guy. Think about it this way. If you ever come down to Orange County, that's my hometown, I can give you recommendations on where to eat. Why? Because I'm from there. I'll tell you exactly where to go. Actually, don't ask me. Just ask Gil. But, uh, <laughs> but that's my place. That's my hometown. I grew up there. And so I, I know all the places around there. But, I mean, that was 20, 30 years ago or so. But, you know, I mean, that's what Philip is. Philip is to the disciples, the expert, the local guy in Bethsaida. So ask him. So if anybody knew what to do, it would be Philip. And so Jesus asks 
Philip and tests him. You see, here's what Philip is going to do, to be tempted to do, that we're all tempted to do sometimes, is that we're going to begin to manage the problem. We're going to begin to reason. We're going to try to figure out how to solve the problem. And that is not what Jesus is testing him on. He's not testing Philip on his logic and reasoning. He's not testing Philip on his managerial or organizational skills. It's much deeper than that. Jesus is doing something here that is much deeper in significance. He's teaching us to turn to him first. What do we do when problems surface or are faced with insurmountable problems? We begin to try and solve it or figure it out on our own. That's what Philip's uh, doing right here. He went right to solving it or at least attempting to. And what Jesus is subtly communicating to Philip and the rest of the disciples that the first thing we ought to do is to turn away from ourselves and turn to him. Relying rather on him than on ourselves. And ooh, I have, how I have had to learn this lesson over and over and over again. The proverb writer, the writer of the Proverbs in chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. He teaches us to rely on him when we're tested in our faith. And we continue as we look through this, all the applications and principles and truths that we can apply to our life. I love it when Jesus says in parallel passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you give them something to eat. Again, strangely, it's not recorded in the book of John, but it's recorded in Matthew and Mark and Luke in Matthew 14 and Mark chapter 6 and Luke chapter 9. Jesus said, you give them something to eat. Now, now it should not be lost on us that while John may not mention this comment, Jesus continues over and over again to include them in the service of his people. He does this not only to test our faith, but to strengthen our faith as well. He involves us, and I'm not sure why, but he involves us in his work. He allows us to participate in this great task. He doesn't just ask us to do it, but he does it with us, and he's with us as we do it. He involves us in the grand adventure of being a priest and a servant and a minister of helping others. Over and over again, he puts us in positions where we are helpless. And then he says, do something. In our desperation, we cry out to God, how? And he replies, I'm glad you asked. And he tells us that I am with you as you do it. For our success totally depends on him and on him alone. And because of who he is, we can face the test he sends with confidence and that's why John gives us the other important detail. Jesus knew what he was going to do. You see, while Satan might tempt us so that we might fail, God often has, has us face tests and trials to strengthen our faith. And there's a world of difference. Because for you see, what God demands, he also supplies with God will give whatever we need in order to do his will. And he will do it in his own time, in his own way, according to his own will. But he will always do it. 
I love this passage in the book of Romans chapter 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He helps us in our weakness. He intercedes for us when we lack words to say. He works all things together for good. And he does all this not just to test our faith, but to strengthen it and to encourage us. Another point of application, I think, you say you don't have anything, but, you are, uh, but are you sure about that? Take a look around and survey your resources, what you have to work with. We should not miss the obvious lesson here. Don't ever despise small things. Just because something is small or seemingly insignificant doesn't mean God cannot use it. All too often, we are quick to make excuses, to evade responsibility, to give up and say, it can't be done. And sometimes we do nothing because we think that what we have doesn't matter. I can't sing. I can't speak. I'm not rich. I don't have many talents. I'm not beautiful. I'm not well-connected. I don't know many people. But things change when we step forward and offer whatever we have to Jesus. It's not as if Jesus said to Andrew, the other person in this story, go out and round up three dozen more biscuits and 15 more fish and we'll see what we can do. Jesus looks up to heaven, blesses the food. As he models for us dependence and reliance upon the Spirit and on God, that with whatever we got, it's to give acknowledgement that it all comes from God, that it all comes from him. And it seems that the obvious lesson is don't be worried about what you don't have, but what you do and give it to God. Elizabeth Elliot, you may recognize her name if you don't. She was the uh, wife of Jim Elliot, who was a uh, missionary to Ecuador, to the Aoka Indians in uh, Ecuador in the 1950s. And uh, Elizabeth Elliot, uh, his, his uh, surviving wife, uh, wrote these words. Um, she says, if the only thing you have to offer is a broken heart, you offer a broken heart. So in a time of grief, the recognition that this is material for sacrifice has been a very great strength for me. Realizing that nothing I have, nothing I am, will be refused on the part of Christ. I simply give it to him as the little boy gave Jesus five loaves and two small fish. With the same feeling of the disciples when they said, what is the good of that for such a crowd? He writes, naturally, in almost anything I offer to Christ, my reaction would be, what is the good of that? And the point is this. The use he makes of it is none of my business. It's his. It's his blessing. So this grief, this loss, this suffering, this pain, whatever it is, which at the moment is God's means of testing my faith and bringing me to the recognition of who he is, 
is the thing that I can offer. I don't know what you have to offer. But Jesus says, small gifts or big are reasons to rejoice or are moments of grief and brokenness. And we lay it down before the altar of feet of Christ. God can do it. God can use that for his glory. I'm tempted, and I have before. I have preached this a number of times. The first time I heard this particular sermon was on the mission field. Missionary Nam was this missionary in, in Mexico, and I remember hearing him preach. And I, 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 I loved the sermon. And I, uh, I'm so blessed by this uh, John chapter 6 passage. I mean, that's the first time I heard it. And I have tried to preach it uh, like him, I think, on a number of occasions, and I think uh, I have preached it, and I have, I have often fallen short. I mean, I don't think the point of the passage, um, as I have read it, uh, ends there. I mean, I wish I can tell you that the, the three application points, right, uh, is that sometimes trials come to test our faith. Uh, God gives uh, tasks for us to involve us in this uh, task of, of missions and, um, and being a blessing to others when he reminds the disciples and uh, exhorts them to go and give them something to eat. Or perhaps as we look at this passage, we look at this and say, well, God works all th things together for good and, and stop there. But I, John doesn't call these miracles for a reason. He calls them signs. And I think the point is, uh, John doesn't want to paint Jesus like a sideshow, uh, what is it, a carnival sideshow. You know, uh, um, he doesn't want to paint Jesus as a, um, as a magician, as a performer in a circus, who does these great works and wows and puts people in awe of what he can do. John does not call anything a miracle in the Gospel of John. Instead, John calls them signs. He records seven signs in his Gospel. Changing the water into wine is the first. We can assume that uh, it's intentional. Uh, this is a sign for people, something that would inform people about what they might expect from this Nazarene, something that would point them to a deeper significance or a deeper meaning. The miracles of Christ were always meant to reveal to us the glory of God and point us to who Jesus is. You see, the application is important, but what it is not, uh, but what if it's not the main point of the passage? The key is in a question that you can ask every time you read the Bible, what does these stories, right, what do these stories tell me about Jesus? In fact, one reason every writer includes this miracle, this sign, is that it's so public and it's so powerful that it's, again, undeniable and irrefutable statement about the person and the ministry of Jesus. How do I know this? Let me just quickly read to you verses 1 through 4. John writes, after this, 
Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. I paused at some key moments on purpose. What is John's point? Jesus went up on the mountain. In verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Why these particular details? John quotes the Old Testament more than any other book of the New Testament, other than the book of Revelation. And he always points back to the Old Testament, and here is no exception. Why does Jesus go up to the mountain? Because Moses receives God's word from the mountain. At Mount Sinai, Moses goes up, receives the tabernacle, uh, receives the, uh, the Ten Commandments or the commandments from God. Uh, and he includes, John includes the, uh, the details of the Passover because, again, we realize that Moses received God's word on the mountain. And what happens right afterwards is the Passover and they, are made, and they make their way into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he provides, God provides manna after he receives the word. And again, all these are supposed to be reminders of the Old Testament. And John is highlighting for us, if you want to understand the abundance of Jesus, you need to understand that Jesus is the true and the better Moses. You're looking for Moses who took the two million Jews into the wilderness and God fed them manna from the sky. And here is Jesus who claims in verse 44, I am the bread of life and he who eats from me will never hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst again. He is God incarnate. He is a better Moses. You see, God's purpose in the transformation of the water into wine in the story of the wedding at Cana, or the purpose of the restoring of the man's blindness, or the purpose of the healing of the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethsaida, or the purpose of the healing of the nobleman's son, all this is an illustration of the gospel. That these would be Signs that point to the work, the ministry, the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, we come to the table each week, and these are just tangible signs. You look at it, it's just crackers. But what we do when we hold it, we feel it in our hands, and we realize Jesus said, this is my body. And, e and as easily as the cracker uh, breaks in your hand. And in the same way, he took what's ordinary Jews. Jew ordinary Jews, there's nothing that we've... Uh, prayed over and it's become something else it's just juice and we drink it to remind ourselves that the the grape juice the wine that we drink the, uh, the, the 
Elder reminds us of the lifeline of his blood. All this as a sign. All this as a story of good news of the gospel. For when we said we can't do it, Lord, we have no money. Jesus, he takes five loaves and two fish, he breaks it, and he feeds the multitudes and reminds them that only upon feasting on him. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. 